Welcome to episode three of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, Group Editorial Director of Cannabis Science and Technology Magazine and your podcast co-host. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other co-host for the Noid Knowledge Podcast. On this month's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Adam Jacques, Chief Geneticist of Zed Therapeutics, and Zachariah Hildenbrand, Research Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Texas, El Paso, and a Director of the Curtis Mathis Corporation. Adam and Zach share some fascinating information on hemp research limitations and sampling rules related to an article they published with Cannabis Science and Technology in 2021. They also share some insight on autoflowering genetics and what the future of hemp research and innovation could potentially hold. Let's jump in with our guests and expand your Noid knowledge. Hello, podcasters, and welcome to our guests, Adam Jacques, Chief Geneticist at Zed Therapeutics, and Zachariah Hildenbrand, Research Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Texas at El Paso and a director of the Curtis Mathis Corporation. Adam and Zach are here to discuss an article they published with Cannabis Science and Technology about hemp research restrictions, as well as some trends they are seeing in autoflowers. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. A tremendous Thank pleasure you. being here. Thanks. I'm, I'm curious, how did you each get involved in the cannabis and hemp industry and end up working together? Oh boy, uh, Adam, where, where do we start? I mean, I can give you my perspective. Adam's been in this game a lot longer and uh, I like to brag about him more than he likes to brag. I mean, Adam and his partner, Christian West are essentially the founding fathers of CBD medicine in the entire North America. I mean, they were working on CBD 10 years before anyone even knew what it was, you know, and now we, we fast forward and CBDs and everything. Um, and so I had the good fortune of meeting Adam at a Science of Cannabis Summit in Mesa, Arizona in the summer of 2015. And, uh, you know, as soon as I heard, you know, his presentation and how he articulated the science, um, I was very much interested in working with him. And then as soon as he told me he was from British Columbia, Canada, I knew that we were going to be best friends forever. So um it's we've been working together now for seven years and uh we're really just scratching the surface with our work but we've already published a couple of high impact papers um like in in cannabis science and technology and so uh we have a lot of, of great discoveries to make moving forward yeah I, I started when i was young um i enjoyed cannabis i've always enjoyed cannabis um I guess I started using cannabis probably before I should have. Um, but as I started to get older, um, cannabis was really expensive. And so uh, I got involved with cultivation of the plant and learning how to grow. And then I was in Eugene, Oregon. And here we have um, even way back then, um, we had a pretty robust medical marijuana program. And so I got involved with some Avisky groups here uh, in Eugene, uh, patients needing extra product, things like that. It was a, uh, a system where patients had growers. So there was a lot of people that were incapable of growing for themselves. So I kind of took on that role, started helping people grow their cannabis. Um, throughout that, I got into making medicine, um, started getting more and more um, advanced patients uh, during that time. Um, 
and so I just kind of, I started there. Um, we started working with a bunch of different genetics. That was a big thing for us. Research and development have always been a really big thing for us and product development. Um, met a gentleman named Frank Leeds, uh, who had cancer and we did an oil treatment with him. That's when we really started like working with CBD heavily. Um, Frank went into remission and was so blown away by how much cannabis helped him um, that we got together and we created the first uh, like medical, uh, we, it was called a club back then. There was no dispensary licenses or anything. So we were kind of in a very gray area, but we started a medical club um, to get people oil um, to help them with uh, different you know, uh, there was a lot of opioid addicted adults, lots of pain management, uh, cancer patients, things of that nature, which adapted into fairly quickly uh, children with seizure disorders. Um, so, you know, through working with uh, all of these different patients, uh, parents started to reach out to us. Um, this was kind of at the very start of the Stanley brothers and what they were doing. And parents realized that children with seizure disorders were being helped with CBD. So we had a bunch of parents start reaching out to us, but uh, testing was difficult back then. There wasn't a lot of analytical testing labs. I would say at that time, there was about one total in Oregon. There was some other ones starting up, but it was really hard to prove what we were doing using analytical data and testing analysis. And so I went to Mesa, Arizona. And at that time, I was there giving a uh, presentation on extraction technologies. So this was like right when rosin came out. So that'll kind of date it. Um, I spoke way too long. My speech was supposed to be 15 minutes. I was up there for about an hour. They drug me off stage. And then uh, Zach uh, came up to me and we had a discussion and I, I noticed kind of a kindred spirit, um, somebody that would be able to prove my hypothesis and the things that I was working on. And so it was just a really, uh, a really awesome um, connection that we had there. And pretty much I probably talked to Zach at least every week since then. And now we finally get to work together in more of a direct way doing all of this research and development that we're doing now. And it's just been, it's been a really amazing partnership. That's so great. Um, so as you guys know, the top article on the Cannabis Science and Technology website in 2021 was the piece that you both wrote titled Hemp Regulations and the Restrictions on Innovation. What prompted you to submit this article? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, well, I mean, having done a lot of work in hemp cultivation and seeing how the federal government has handled the regulations, it's been quite infuriating. Um, so, so when I started working with, uh, with Adam at Zed Therapeutics, for example, at that time, uh, we had uh, a standard of 0.3% Delta 9 THC. So as long as your flower material tested below 0.3% weight by weight, Delta 9 THC, uh, it was a compliant product. And then I believe it was October of 2019 when they then went to the 0.3% total THC, which now accounted for Delta 9 THC and its acidic precursor, THCA. And so all of a sudden, you know, 
Adam had plants that were 30, 35, 38% CBDA that were compliant previously, and they had next to no Delta-9, but they had a small amount of THCA, which the plant produces to help it metabolize light. Um, so there's just no way around that signal. And so when those new regulations came out, um, we've done enough research and analysis to know that CBD and or CBDA and THCA concentrations are linearly correlated. So there's only so much CBDA you can you can produce um, while staying under that 0.3 standard. And so now all of a sudden you went from plants that you could make commercially available that were 35, 38% CBDA. Now you can exceed 15% without your plant being considered hot. And so all of a sudden what that meant is now we need to grow twice as much plants and twice the acreage to produce the same amount of medicine. Um, so it was, it was frustrating, it was infuriating. And, and also, I mean, we were making such incredible progress trying to understand some of the ancillary cannabinoids and the terpenes, and we're looking at different classes of flavonoids. And those sort of signals really start to pop as you get a higher concentration of the major cannabinoids like CBDA. And so with this new restriction, it really hindered the other research that we were doing. So um, we felt compelled to come together and, and obviously provide the perspective of a scientist and a world renowned geneticist. Uh, and, you know, we've passed it around to state uh, regulators and the hope is that the federal regulators will see this piece and say, you know, this is, this makes no sense. This total THC concentration of 0.3 is completely arbitrary and hopefully that they'll make a change because it's really suffocating the industry. Um, Europe has the same issue. Uh, so for example, in Europe, I think the standard is 0.2% total THC. Uh, however, you've got countries like Liechtenstein and Switzerland that allow it to go up to 1% total THC. So it's really all over the board and there's no science behind these determinations. And so we were trying to provide, you know, some, some technical commentary to hope, you know, hopefully that the, the powers to be and, and the decision makers can revise the regulations to be more favorable for the industry. Majority wise, um, CBD crop has turned into oil and the ratios on CBD to THC, like, like Zach said, it's, it, it's the same regardless that the ratios stay true. So when you're forcing people to grow subpar genetics um, for their crops, just to you know satiate that 0.3 number, in a lot of cases, you're growing two to three times as much to get the same amount of oil, even though after extraction, the oil will be the same in a, a 10% or a 15% or a 30. The concentrated oil is going to be the same, have the same amount of THC, the same amount of CBD. So from everything from the harm in, in the amount of land used, the water used, if so people are using pesticides, how many are used, the time it takes to grow the extra crop, uh, the value, the, the amount that has to go into extraction. So you're extracting three times as much. You need three times as much seed. You need three times as many tests. Um, it's just, it doesn't make any sense uh, for the, the plant. Um, when you're looking at genetics, <clears throat> we kind of call them types one, two, and three, and it's, it's loose. There are definitely different 
types of, of cannabis plants, but type one, two, and three is very easy to remember for people. Type one being high THC, type two being ratio plants, which are like one-to-ones, and type three being hemp plants where CBD is dominant. And so by saying that not all type three plants are hemp, but all type three plants are high CBD, and then creating these kind of this, this number came out of the late 70s um, in a hemp crop from a leaf sample. And that's just kind of what they've hung their hat on as this number is hemp. Um, it is not true. And it really does hinder our ability to be more creative, to, to push numbers up to look for minor cannabinoids, like Zach was saying, that the higher we can push things, the more we're able to see. And so it's uh, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating to be to be hindered by uh, by a number that really, in at the end of the day, really doesn't mean anything. It it seems like this arbitrary number um, uh, really undermines the the intent of the law, right? Because uh, what you just described is inefficiencies in every category you could possibly think of because of some arbitrary number that cuts the legs under the ratio. Yes, absolutely. Yep. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, here, have, have this wonderful industry grow this plant that, that can cure people, can cure soil, can, can cure the atmosphere uh, if, you, if you let it grow how it grows, uh, but, but you can't. Yeah, I right. mean, it, the, the, the hemp cannabis plant is incredibly efficient at carbon capture. It's efficient at what's called phytoremediation, which is pulling uh, heavy metals and minerals out of the soil. And what we saw um, are a lot of folks, particularly in the Midwest or in the Southeast, uh, where these are traditional farmers, maybe soybean, canola, corn, and they wanted to diversify and try hemp. And so they get into this space and all of a sudden, you know, there's a very favorable commodity price and then these new regulations come out and then what they thought was going to be their number one cash crop, all of a sudden they have to incinerate it because it's no longer compliant to these new regulations. So you had this, you know, expansive industry that was growing at a meteoric rate and then these new regulations just slammed the brakes on that. And now you have a lot of folks that are, are discouraged. Um, and so, you know, I don't know where we go from here. So again, that was the impetus for Adam and I to get together as, you know, we kind of have a feel for what's going on here. Uh, we know where the industry should be going. So maybe if we put something together, the right people will see it and, and we can affect some change here. So the, that's, Fantastic. So uh, it it seems like uh, Adam, may, maybe since you you've been responsible for the the cultivars and that have influenced the shift in in all the policy uh, over the last uh, several decades, um, you you might feel a, a responsibility for keeping the industry progressing on the right path. Am I reading that right? You know, there definitely was a time where I was doing my best to make sure that there was a, a good variety of genetics and that we were 
really pushing the envelope on what the plant could do. Um, I've been extremely hindered by the new laws. Um, so whereas I was pushing everything as, as high as possible in the type three cannabis space, now my work, a lot of my work is spent making things worse, um, for lack of a better word, making things test lower. So I'm, I'm struggling and I'm back crossing against things that just don't, that aren't as good, that don't test as high. I'm using some CBG inputs to lower things, but a lot of my work now is lowering numbers and making things, um, um, less than they, they should be. So it's like kind of a shift in direction. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, a lot of the genetics that are out there all come from the same precursor genetics. So you have a lot of uh, canatonic uh, cherry wine, um, things of that nature that are out there. But when you're looking at uh, like wild land race cannabis, uh, when you source seeds from land race areas that haven't been bred with before, all three types of cannabis exists in those spaces so bringing new hemp genetics into the space getting new terpenes flavonoids and then these kind of structures and trying to help the industry see that hemp can be just as varied as as type 1 thc it's just it's just the breeding practices so i i stay in my lane um with with the genetics and stuff but i do as much educating as i can to try and help people understand uh, what type three genetics are and what hemp is. Um, is that kind of what you're asking? Uh, I, it's a great answer. Uh, if you could just uh, clarify for the listeners uh, what land race, land race genetics might be. So um, land race genetics are, are wild, wild hemp hemp plants or wild marijuana plants. Um, they exist in nature. They've existed in nature for a very long time um, before humans even started using it. And there's regions around the world. Hemp is pretty well spread around the globe. So there's regions of the world where hemp grows wild. So a land race strain is just a, a wild variety of, of uh, cannabis. And are, do, do any of them have names? W would people know any uh, of these land races? You know, so like an issue is is with the common nomenclature, things like Afghani, right? So Afghani was originally like you would go to Afghanistan up into the Rocky Hills and collect the land races. But then those seeds were brought back to breeding facilities and locked down and selected for. So what you're seeing is somebody's, somebody's breeding project from that what you can do is there are still regions in the world be it in like they don't have the the names of things now that you would be like oh that's a land race durban poison from africa or afghani or pakistani or hindu things like that have, have all been bred and locked down and selected for certain traits so when you're talking about names of genetics that are land races, usually they're just attached to a an area or a location, um, you know, like Northern Indian or things of that, you know, Thai, um, things of that nature, but they're not really named and locked down and categorized. 
categorized like that yet. They're just more more attached to a, a location. I, I think that's an important distinction. Thank you. What do you guys think needs to happen for hemp regulations to change? Like full cannabis legalization, better federal understanding of these different genetics or something else entirely? Yeah, I, I think that full federal legalization will certainly help. Um, but I mean, we also have to illustrate to the regulators, the decision makers, you know, the drastic financial, societal, environmental implications that these regulations have, right? So we're having to use more chemicals, we're having to use more space, you've devalued the commodity. Um, and this is an industry where really it should have been like a new wave. I mean, we, of, we often hear about the green rush. Um, and you know people wanting to make money quickly but hemp you know the way that it should be structured is it should be a very sustainable industry here domestically where farmers can switch over and diversify their crops which inherently helps their farming business um, allows them to make more money um, it's better for the soil by rotating crops i mean th this is how it should be structured so I think money always talks, right? And a lot of the things that these decision makers have to consider are what are the financial implications. And I just don't think that they're aware of, of what's happened here in the last couple of years as a result of these new regulations. Um, it's also important to say, I mean, you know, on the cannabis side of thing, it's one of the most highly scrutinized industries in the world. I mean, there's all kinds of compliance that's required, reporting, um, and so, you know, again, this isn't uh, some rogue fly-by-night industry. I mean, this is this is people. You know, Adam is is a geneticist. I mean, I'm a traditionally trained scientist. There's a lot of of highly trained individuals trying to add legitimacy to this industry. So um, it would behoove all of us to really open it up and make make it more favorable. So you know, again, I, I think we really to that have point, to. Point though, Zach. I think there is a lot of people that aren't doing things for the right reason, which does kind of oh, cast sure. that shadow on the on the industry. I I think that the there's rooms for there's room for all avenues of cannabis businesses, uh, and you know, but without like an honest discussion and understanding, like an educational approach to understanding cannabis and having those discussions and without these companies trying to say you know there's a lot of stuff that's made up just because it fits the narrative right so well i have a genetic that grows 30 percent cbd and no detectable thc well impossible you're lying and you're making something up and you're just hurting what it yeah. is that everybody's trying to do um so i would i would say that getting people to be honest and transparent about what hemp is and how it works and and really teach people how to understand the plant and what it does and and what we're doing is very important because I think a lot of what people see a lot of the flashy headlines that people see are are the people doing things that are more black markety and under the table and kind of unscrupulous you know yeah no I I agree that that's an important distinction I mean I guess one thing that's kind of perplexing to me here is, you know, again, we, we don't know what happens behind closed doors, you know, at the state and federal level of politics, but, you know, Mitch McConnell, who obviously is a prominent figure in American politics, whether you're on the right or the left side, everyone knows Mitch McConnell. Um, his son is one of the most prolific hemp growers in the state of Kentucky. And so you would think, well, okay, 
you would think that Mitch would have a conversation with someone at the federal level to say, hey, these new regulations are are not helping for the simple fact that he wants to take care of his son's business. Um, but, you know, the, the points that you're making there, Adam, are, are 100% on the money. I mean, a lot of times, and, and Adam's had to do this, I've certainly had to do this, is you have to atone for the sins of others and people trying to do these unscrupulous things. You have to work 10 times harder to right those wrongs. And so, you know, that's where we just value the opportunity and the sounding board, if you will, for discussions like this and the ability to write technical commentaries. And you just hope that if you write enough of this information that's compelling enough for someone who makes a decision, uh, that they'll tune in and, and it'll change their perspective. So, you know, we've been doing this for a long time together. We still have a long ways to go. And, you know, um, I, I think if we just keep harping on some of these key points that sooner or later, you know, we'll break through. I mean, that that is absolutely the hope. I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm no expert, but M Mitch is all about the long game and there has yet to be a compelling enough reason for him to make some kind of concession or even position uh, on this known, even for his son's business, uh, is, isn't going to happen. So it's got to make, it's got to make sense. So, you know, do, would you guys like to take a stab at what you you think an ideal legal or regulatory framework would look like for for cannabis does it differ between types one two and three well you could you could just grossly simplify and just say okay let's go federally legal and we'll have the states oversee this process and then let's allow for interstate commerce I mean, because one thing if you do open up for federal legalization is you kill the black market, in my opinion. Um, if you make the legal market, the lit markets favorable, then everyone can play the game and, and feels that they have a chance to succeed. Um, but when you make it too restrictive, that's when, you know, those lurk lurking in the dark markets, that's when they really start to, to flourish. So, you know, California is um, learning that the hard way, huh? So is Southern, so is Southern Oregon. They've taken yeah. down so many crops this summer. People had hemp licenses. They did, uh, you know, random checks and people were growing acres on acres of acres of high THC under the guise of hemp, hoping they could push it through and funnel it into the black market. So, you know, for me, if they, you know, with the hemp laws in particular, if they could just make an understanding of what type three cannabis is and just legalize all type three cannabis, my world would be made. If I have to make a concession and it has to be a percentage, I, I think that like Switzerland and Liechtenstein at like 1% yeah. is an acceptable number. I still have some stuff that will go over like maybe 1.2%. Like that's about the highest it goes in anything I have. Um, but you know, I, I, I can make the concession of one percent i would i would feel comfortable there it's just so arbitrary i mean nobody, ridiculous no, because nobody i grew is intentionally growing this unless it's for medicine right like who who wants three percent thc cannabis it's hard to find because it's not on purpose no you know um and with hemp you know with the with the the chart that we have really even at like there's there's a point where you can't really shove any more cannabinoids into a plant and really 
that falls in like the 30 to 35% range. So, you know, using the charts that we have, you're really never going to see THC above 1.5% in true type three genetics. So by just saying type three, one, it makes the oil great. You, you know, at that point you get four X per acre. Also people aren't smoking 1.5%, 35% CBD hemp to get high. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't yeah. get you high. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my prediction here, and I'm, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic, of course, is that there will be federal legalization for type one and type three cannabis, all cannabis at the federal level here uh, in the next couple of years, because I mean, we do have some large budgetary items coming up and we've seen the financial implications of legalization at the state level. Um, so, okay, if you wanna generate massive amounts of tax revenue, then allow, open it up, allow people to cultivate this stuff. And then also, um, it could be a real push for, you know, an, a true American commodity that could be shipped all across the world. So, you know, there's huge economic opportunities here if they were to open it up. And of course, those that are lobbying against it would be probably alcohol, tobacco and the pharmaceutical industry. As soon as it goes federally legal, they're the first ones in with billions of dollars, hundreds, you know, or million square foot indoor facilities growing it at a pharmaceutical scale. Um, so, you know, okay, if that's going to happen, that, that's a concession I'm willing to make, but if it gives, uh, economic opportunities for Joe Farmer to grow something that's 10 times more valuable than soybeans so that his family can get ahead and the end product is going to be more efficacious for patients, then, I mean, let's do that. Let's right. make that happen. Right. That's the point. Is it any good? You know, if they want a, a million square feet, like... Can, can it be done properly so it's good? Is that possible at a million square feet? I don't, think, I don't think you need a million square feet. I think that's enough product for like the entire country. But can you? Yes, it's just manpower at that point. The build outs are stackable, right? So we can take the same, the same lights, the same growing methodologies, and we can go as big as anybody would want. Um, the only, it's just the, how many bodies are you employing? How many people are working? But it all scales. You can scale it absolutely. Um, and the quality can be maintained. I'm not saying a pharmaceutical company would maintain the quality that I would want, but you, but you could. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you had, you're, you're right. I mean, if you had enough, enough folks and you followed the SOPs, um, it, it certainly is possible. And again, if, if you do open it up for federal legalization, then you're going to have access, all of these more favorable genetics, like what Adam has dedicated his life's work to, uh, are now into play. And, uh, you know, and that's another issue that's been really, it's been like a nagging injury, if you will, is because of all of these restrictions, you've got people buying genetics, which I think is crazy. They're, they're buying genetics online. And they say, oh yeah, no, I've, I've got, this is gonna produce 25% CBD and no THC and it's 99% feminized. And then, you know, you grow it and then it's, it's got low CBD and it's hot for THC. Half of the plants are males. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, I'm online dating and I think I'm dating a Brazilian supermodel and then I, it shows up. It's a, a fat dude named Larry. I mean, it's just like false advertising. Dude, I love Larry. Larry's a good guy. 
well, he's not what I signed up for is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm getting catfish genetics. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. that that's exactly right. And so again, if you open it up and you have the you could almost have like seed banks, repositories. Um, where you've got guys that have dedicated their life to ultra premium, stable genetics that are highly efficacious, you know, get those out in, into the market. But um, as it currently stands, you know, it, it's hard for, for the right people to find Adam with his genetics because uh, there's so much marketing involved and there, there's so much SEO involved in this um with people trying to fly under these new regulations so you know again just make it open it up make it more transparent make it more legitimate and then the right people will flourish in my opinion i just want to backtrack for a second about the actual limit that they have it's 0.3 percent thc so they just where did that come from is there any kind of logic to why they chose that number yes um Hold on just a second. Let me make sure I have the exact. Yeah. And so while he's looking that up, so it, it's, it's 0.3% total THC. So that's your Delta nine THC. So that's the psychoactive compound. So it's that concentration plus 88% of the THCA precursor. And so the 88% accounts for the loss in mass for decarboxylation uh, when you heat it. So basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to have a standard of if you were to smoke this and combust this flower material, you have to be below 0.3 total THC after you account for the, the THCA decarboxylation. So um, from my perspective, you know, Adam's got a better, a better answer for this one than I do, but from my perspective. I, I can't find the exact date, but it was part of the pilot hemp program. And they did a, a, a grown on plant leaf sample. It tested at 0.3% of what they had at that time as hemp. And so at that point, that became the number of what hemp is. From one sample. Or, well, I'm, well maybe. One. Yes, it was a leaf sample. And. <laughs> Not, not and, even of a I don't know. Maybe maybe they took ten samples. I can't find the document. It does exist, um, but it's a completely random, made up number. Th yes. Does does this date all the way back to 1937? I believe it was late 70s. Oh my gosh. Yeah, hot off the presses. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, thank you for there clarifying. was a lot of work being done in uh, Brazil of all places and children with seizure disorders and CBD in the late 70s early 80s and that's all you can look all of that up so it it was known back then and then it kind of just got swept on like hemp is medicine kind of got swept under the rug for about 20 30 years um so I mean, they there was stuff happening with it back then, and we're still using those those metrics for today. Wow. So that would be like saying, well, your computer in 1990 had <laughs> had four megabytes of RAM, so that's all that's allowed for the for the rest of time. Uh, that sounds like an appropriate analogy. Yeah. <laughs> So if there were no restrictions, uh, what kind of innovation would you like to see or even be able to test out in your own work? Wow. Oh boy, where do we Big start question, there? Right, um, everything. 
You know, I, I would like to be off the leash with my with my, my breeding. I don't want to worry about 0.1% being the difference between somebody losing a hundred acres worth of product or being just fine. It's it's crazy, it's stressful. So there's a lot of anxiety involved in the job that I do because the genetics that I'm giving to these farmers to grow have to be very, very specifically a certain number. So instead of focusing on the different aspects of the cannabis plant and the different cannabinoids and flavonoids and terpenes and being able to chase down rabbits in different directions and, and really hone in on things, I spend most of my time doing a balancing act, trying to make sure that this one number in the plant is specifically where it needs to be. So I instead of focusing on, you know, pushing the envelope as hard as we can, we always have to backtrack and do a lot of focusing on, is this legal and is somebody going to get in trouble for it? Yeah, and, and from my perspective, I mean, while Adam is, is always trying to better understand uh, chemical expression of cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, these uh, volatile sulfur-bearing compounds, he's trying to understand that at the genetic level I'm always trying to understand that at the environmental level. So how can we uh, change up water quality, soil quality? How can we alter lighting spectrum, lighting intensity to really accentuate or suppress the expression of some of these compounds? So if all of a sudden, you know, I no longer have to worry about the THC concentration and I can do all these experiments, um, you know, it really frees me up. Um, but as it stands now, I mean, and we've been using we've been using low THC hemp as a surrogate for the analysis of of high THC cannabis. Um, but if I no longer have to worry about the THC concentration, and I'm just trying to establish, you know, whatever I can do. Let's say we're looking at the relationship between lighting and the anthocyanin uh, class of, of flavonoids. I, I don't care at all about the THC. But as it stands right now. You know, we're doing those experiments and for in order for us to publish that work, we have to make sure that that flower material is compliant if we're running those samples through a lab that doesn't have a DEA license. So it, it's just really been a, a massive thorn in our side. And, you know, we do have the good fortune of working with, you know, phenomenal analytical chemists like Kevin Chug at UT Arlington. And again, if we didn't have these restrictions, he'd be able to use a lot more of his toys for us to, to help us better understand this plant. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of brutal. Uh, yeah. you, you'd think, you, I, I mean, considering that uh, you, you said anthocyanins, that's what makes purple cannabis purple, right? Or, or mm -hmm. blueberries yep. blue. Yep, yep. That's uh, so the anthocyanins, they give blueberries, blackberries, they're wonderful color, they're pigment elements, um, but they're also very powerful antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. And what we've come to find out is that, you know, you normally see it in Croptober, uh, you start to see the purples and the blues and the dark colors come out as a function of the drop in temperature in outdoor cultivation. Mm -hmm. Well, what we've found is that we can actually, with indoor cultivation, we can modulate different red light frequencies at the tail end of the flowering cycle to really accentuate anthocyanin production. And the results are quite striking. So, I mean, all of this is to say that 
ultimately what Adam and I want to see happen is, you know, people to go into a dispensary or a store and ask for a strain of cannabis or hemp with specific compounds and for their specific application. And if we can alter the genetics and then modulate the environmental conditions to really dial in the chemicals that are being expressed by these plants, then all of a sudden, you know, we've got recipes for how to make something for a neurodegenerative disease or something for a treatment for gastrointestinal stress or something that can accentuate fat metabolism. I mean, we can really get it dialed in, but again, that's given, you know, that's under the assumption that we don't have these overlying, you know, restrictions hanging over our head. And, and how do you maintain those profiles in, in consumption? Uh, is vaporization suitable to maintain all those compounds? Uh, does it have to be extraction? What type of extraction? Oh boy. Um, well, I mean, we could talk about this forever. I mean, just <laughs> a lot so of the compounds are extremely volatile. So when you're adding heat, even if it's low heat for a little bit of time, you're going to lose some of those compounds. So there's, there's different ways to intake your cannabis. Obviously, yeah. probably the most popular at this point is still smoking, whether that's oil or, or flour. Um, you're going to lose a lot of things during the combustion process, but um, edibles, same thing. You're generally cooking, um, but you can take something like the anthocyanins and let's say we had a nice purple genetic and, and juice the leaves using a cold press. And then you can maintain all of those compounds and like a, it kind of tastes like white peppery wheat. It's, it's, not, it's not a great drink, um, but I, I do enjoy uh, cannabis leaf uh, extract drinks. So I think that's something that, you know, might come up, but there's, there's a hundred different ways to extract uh, the, the, the chemicals from the cannabis plant. And it, it just matters. What are you trying to achieve with the effects? What are you, what are you looking to target with what you're doing and then pick the extraction methodology that, that works best for what you're attempting to do? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly versatile plant in that, okay, even if you start with an immensely stable genetic uh, based on myriad uh, environmental factors, soil, water, lighting, you name it, uh, you can alter the expression of these different classes of compounds. And then the extraction or the consumption process, that also affects how the molecules are absorbed and metabolized in your body. Um, so it's just so versatile, it's so complex, but we're now starting to understand these by doing these kind of experiments. And, and really the only way that we've gotten here is because, you know, we've, I've had the good fortune of working with Adam, who's a world-renowned genetics geneticist. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the best genetics on the planet and we have them in the hands of the best analytical chemists on the planet. So, um, you know, that's, that's really the fertile ground for making these sort of, of discoveries. And, and we've been, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming to, to make these collaborations happen. They just don't happen overnight. But, um, you know, we, we've made some pretty sizable discoveries and, and we hope to have the good fortune of continuing on with this research. 
Um, could you guys talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in Europe and the places that have the 1% total THC requirement? Like what, what kind of differences are you seeing there in innovation and some of the products that are coming out of those products compared to what we're doing here? There's a, well, a much larger emphasis on, on university studies and, and medical studies uh, based around cannabis in Switzerland. So they have a much larger pool of genetics and plants to, to draw from. One of the things that's happening over there, though, is the rest of the EU is 0.2. So a lot of the flower gets grown. It gets stripped of cannabinoids and cannabinoids are sprayed back on at an acceptable level and shipped to the rest of the EU. So that's happening a lot. Um, the people that really are putting in the time and effort and doing it the right way, though, it's it's a more robust uh, educational system that they're really learning a lot about the plant. Um, as far as what it looks like hands on and there, um, I haven't been there yet but we will be there in March and I'll have a much better idea of exactly what's happening. But the companies that I see operating specifically in the Swiss space seem to be, it, I would put them in line with like Israel as far as like the education and the research that is being done. Um, there's money and intelligent people and actually educated people, not not the bro science we're used to being being put in into these projects, which is great to see. That's that's fantastic. Um, they, wh while we're talking about Switzerland, uh, you, you hear anything out of Germany? Uh, I hear they're on the verge of full legalization. So that's, you know, um, Luxembourg is the same. Um, Germany, um, they'll say that that they're going to fully legalize and they mean it um but then there what it seems like we work with some gentlemen out of luxembourg one of the gentlemen's from germany a gentleman from Liechtenstein. so we work with people in the space over there and um so they make these grandiose statements hey we're going to legalize now we just have to make the rules so it'll be a while uh why they get all the rules together but the uh Yes, the intention is to fully legalize in those locations. Cool. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd like to shift gears a little bit while we have you both. So um, we wanted to touch on autoflowering uh, plants. And uh, the paper you wrote along with Christian West titled Autoflowering Genetics Present Unique Opportunities. Can you tell us more about that work, what it might mean for the industry in the future, what it might mean for, you know, my mom who likes to grow tomatoes out back? Yeah. yeah. Um, when we're talking about autoflower genetics, uh, just very baseline for those that don't know, um, autoflower genetics are rooted in, in ruderalis is where you breed them from. And ruderalis genetics exist in extreme northern climates. So what they have built in that other cannabis plants do not is it doesn't take a certain lighting schedule for them to flower. They do what's called an auto flower, which means it could be 24 hours a day of sun up in Alaska and this plant will still continue to flower. So what that offers is kind of a, <clears throat> a training wheels approach 
to growing cannabis for some people. Also, what it allows is multiple crops in certain parts of the world. So once you get like, let's say, closer to the equator, you're on a constant 12-12, which means things are always flowering. So if you're growing auto flowers, you don't have to wait for this elongated vegetative cycle. You'll just go straight from plant into flower. So let's say in Hawaii, you could optimally grow five crops outdoor a year using auto flower genetics. Um, let's say you have a hemp farm in Alaska, you're still going to be able to get your crop off even with the kind of wacky schedule that happens up there. Um, for somebody like your mom, um, it's as easy as taking like, let's say a five gallon pot and putting some charged soil into it, you can get at the garden store, planting a seed and just watering it with the hose until it's done. And you'll end up with, with cannabis. Yeah, it's really made uh, cultivation and, and really cannabis in general, more inclusive to the average person. So if you're like me and you have the best of intentions to have, you know, maintain your house plants and have nice flowers back in the backyard, you know, I don't have the expertise to understand about nutrients and nutrient lock and soil quality and, and all these things. Um, I, I just want something, you know, kind of like my Instapot where I make a pot roast. I just want to set it and forget it. So if there's a genetic like these auto flowers now, um, thanks to the work by Christian and, and Adam, um, I can put these things in the soil and in 10 weeks time I have harvestable material that is highly efficacious. And, you know, one of the knocks against auto flowers because they are derived from the ruderalis. Um, you often hear the term, what is it, Ohio, Adam? Ohio ditchweed? Sure, yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> okay, so, so Ohio ditchweed, I mean, this is tall, spindly, single stock uh, cannabis varietals that have maybe one, maybe 2% THC or CBD in them. So this is mostly what would be regarded as a, a fiber type genetic. And so most people think, oh, this is an auto flower. It's got no cannabinoids in it. Well, no, actually they've evolved quite substantially. Again, thanks to these gentlemen where we have auto flowers now that will from seed to harvest are done in 10 weeks and you can grow them indoors, you can grow them outdoors and you can produce 30% THC or 30% CBD flower. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And so if that's the foot in the door for someone who is kind of on the fence about it and they grow this plant, it looks beautiful, smells, in, you know, the smell of it is intoxicating and then they ingest it and they find, wow, this is really great stuff. Then maybe they become an advocate or a supporter of this. And maybe now they go support their local dispensary and try other things to see, you know, what other genetics or, or products are out there. Um, so I, I really think it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to call it, um, like, a, you know, those, those silly chia pet things where it was like, you know, I have one at home, it's the head of Bob Ross and you just water it and it grows these little um, sprouts, but then it kind of triggers people into getting more into horticulture. Well, I really think that, that auto flowers are kind of the key to getting more people involved in, in growing plants and, and more importantly, more involved in the medical aspect of cannabis. And it's and it's true. Originally, auto flowers had a bad rap for a good reason. So if we're talking like 20 years ago, you were getting a lot of raw ruderalis uh, crosses. They hadn't been polyhybridized very much with other genetics. So 
it, it always kind of had that smell of fresh cut grass and or dry hay and the trichrome density was poor and the, it just wasn't great looking product at this point you know figuring out how to breed that autoflower trait into other genetics it's it's just as wide open as your standard thc or your standard cbd genetics we can turn anything into an autoflower at this point so you're not really losing anything by going the autoflower route so uh, i mean it sounds like this is the tip of the iceberg and once the the cat's out of the bag especially in some of these new home grow states like uh i'm in here in new york uh may, maybe people are only going to get uh one, one harvest a year but they they'll get their summer their summer plants going um yeah i think for people like the uh, hobbyist they're great um, once you get into large scale production, the issue with with growing from seed is there's going to be some there's going to be some variability in the plants. So if you're looking for something that's exactly the same, if you're making pounds to sell to the store or something, you generally want to go with photo period clones. Um, that way, you know that everything is exactly the same. But for people growing a few plants in their backyard or people running large crops for oil production and things of that nature autoflowers are way better so uh, are you creating autoflowering cultivars of of type three type two also is are you finding a market for this uh are you thinking about different regional climates when you're picking the genetics or or are are you being contracted to to breed a certain kind of of plant? Evan, I yes, think a yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> yeah, a better question for Adam is, uh, Adam, do you have a breeding addiction? Do you have an uncontrollable breeding problem? <laughs> it's it's an issue. It's an issue. Um, yes, in the hemp space, uh, we have bush variety and single stock variety autoflowering hemp, um, both of very high quality. Um, with the single stock, you can pack more into an acre and create more weight that way. So for oil creation, it's a really good way to go. Um, but there's also the standard bush varieties for people to grow. Um, we have them at this point about 32 different flavors let's call them 32 different genetics of autoflowering and so yeah um and then high thc of course and ratio so and i have single stock and bush varieties and all types so yes yeah i i to give you guys some frame of reference i always i visit adam as frequently as i can and he's got his own personal grow where he does you know some of more his more intimate experiments and I always ask him, like, are, do you ever produce plants for flower to, to smoke? And no, the answer is no. He's just always pollinating plants, making new cultivars, always producing seeds. And I mean, the repertoire is enormous. Um, it's, it's some of the most impressive work I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, Adam, Adam is the guy that has produced thousands of different cultivars and, and he's got the, the secret sauce, so to speak, in terms of going back and forth between photo period and uh, auto flower, as well as, you know, he's created some technology that can convert group one into group three. So for example, 
uh, let's say it's Blue Dream or Northern Lights, and for whatever reason you like those two strains, but they're cannabis and you wish you had a CBD analog of that, well, Adam can basically, with his genetic tools, um, breed those plants to produce that CBD analog while maintaining the same flavor and fragrance profile. Um, uh, so really quite phenomenal stuff. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, yeah, Merlin. He goes by Merlin. <laughs> it's, an, it's an addiction and it's, it's terrible. I, I can't stop. I, my, my life's work will never be done because I enjoy what I do so much. And I just worry that by the time my, my time is done here, I will never see my genetics actually grown out. <laughs> There's just going to be too many. There, yeah, there, Zach, there are no. too many. Zach, yeah. though, this round in my room, I'm not seeding anything for the first time in probably 10 years. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> it's all set up, man. It looks good. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But the intention is to not. I'm actually growing out some of my own genetics, so I'm very excited. Well, when, when you start producing seeds in there and you uh, start blaming it on your dogs for bringing in rogue pollen, I'll, I'll know that that's a poor excuse. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can can anybody um, like buy these seeds? And I mean, does it have to be, so if it's considered hemp, like you can ship it anywhere in the US? Yes, correct. Um, anywhere that has favorable hemp laws, I can ship the seeds to. So yes, the seeds are shippable. Um, what I have to do here in the state of Oregon with hemp genetics is I have to have the genetics tested. I have to do a tracing program as I'm growing them out, which means weekly tests and photos. Then it's some states have different, uh, avenues to send hemp seeds some states require me to send let's say like a quarter pound of seed so they can test it for germination rates and any sort of uh, like other weed seeds in it or things like that um but yes with minimal hoops i can ship seeds to pretty much anywhere wow and do do you have a commercial outlet for this a website uh, or some, yeah, some ZTherapeutics.com, and you can go on there and see our current catalog of genetics that are available. Um, also, if somebody has like a specialty requirement or something that they're looking for, I can, I mean, I don't want to say I can do pretty much anything, but I can do a lot um, in, in that realm as well. But anybody can go to ZTherapeutics.com, reach out directly and and ask what we have going on right now specifically we're we're going after high cbg varieties and different flavors uh, we're working on cbc expression and we're working on cbdv expression so those are the the new hot things coming out but in the cbd straight cbd hemp space we have a lot <laughs> a lot available also shameless plug um, if anybody happens to be in Spain in March, uh, I will be giving a presentation at Spanibus. So that is always an extremely good time. And there will be a lot to learn there. And so if, yeah, if you happen to be in Spain, March, March 12th, I believe, is the day that I speak. And I'm on a board with Alex Pasternik of Binsky. So, yeah, stop by and, and check us out.
Come come for the knowledge, stay for the paella. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So where do you guys think the hemp industry is headed overall in terms of regulations and future innovation? Who's making the decisions? That's going to be the big, you know. Um, I Personally, I, I don't have a lot of faith. I, I think it'll be overregulated in the favor, like in the favor of pharmaceutical and large scale invested cultivators, like kind of what's happening in REC. I, uh, I, I think the bigger players are going to push out of a lot of the little guys, a lot of the innovators that have been in the community. I, I hope that in time it will become like craft beer models, right? And things lighten up on what people are allowed to do. But Generally, it's the people, it's not the right thing or the educated decision that makes the law, right? It's the people that are paying um, the most amount of money to get what's favorable for them. And that's what I worry that's going to happen with the hemp space and the cannabis space at large. I hope it doesn't, but I've been in this for a long time and I've watched regulations get rolled out and they're never really in favor of of innovators and research and development and people doing it the correct way. It's always in favor of, of big money. Yeah, I, I think uh, that assessment is is spot on. I think that there will be, well, and it might even be a moot point. I mean, if they come out with federal legalization in the next couple of years, then maybe they just uh, push hemp underneath that. Um, but yeah, again, I would love the opportunity to sit in front of some of these federal regulators with our article and, and talk through it with them. Um, you know, again, the, the financial, the economic, and, and also the medicinal implications, the medical implications of, of some of these laws and how they're impacting, you know, entire sectors and, and, and the healthcare industry in general, right? Because again, I, I have the good fortune, my wife is, is, a, is a nurse practitioner. And so she's uh, what I would say been indoctrinated with you know the medicine pharmaceutical medicine that we have today and you know she's dealing with patients with hip and knee replacements all the time and of course you know they're all on these heavy heavy duty uh, painkillers and opioids and all kinds of nasty stuff and and what hemp and cannabis represent is a healthier alternative to that and while she certainly sees the value in it she's just restricted from doing anything she can't talk to patients about this she gets asked all the time um, but but you can't really act on and or provide any recommendations. Um, yeah, the common sense is all right there. To it's, yeah. it's plain to see. You know, it's not. It's it's not. Uh, give us an hour. Give me and Zach an hour with just about anyone, and we can explain to you why. It's just. Are people going to listen to the reasonable common sense facts? You know? Right. Do you think yeah. other countries are going to surpass us because of these like restrictions we have, you know, the, in terms of research and even medical benefits? I, I would say that, that Israel already has. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that Northern European countries are very close. What we have going for us here is kind of the West Coast, right? So you have decades upon decades of the lack of a better word, stoners and hippies growing weed out here for just about ever. And so our genetic repertoires, our genetic libraries are very locked down and very good. You have years on years of cultivation experience. So I think in a lot of ways, we're ahead of the curve there. 
But as far as like true science and understanding and education of the plant goes, I feel like we fall further. I feel like more bad information comes out than good information. Like there's just so much misinformation that comes out in this country surrounding the cannabis plant. I think that's where we're, we're pretty much already falling behind. We're dragging everybody backwards with us. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Right. right, The, the war on drugs has been the war on cannabis science and uh, uh, disinformation at every turn. Uh, I, my, my wife is a very intelligent woman with a doctorate and we, we still discuss, uh, fears that have been instilled in her that are based purely on, on nothing or, or not on nothing on, on papers that were paid for by some special interest group to, to say that it was terrible based on the garbage plant that comes out of Mississippi because that's the only thing that's approved to right. be studied. Well, if yeah, you have well, one doc, if you have one doctor out of a hundred saying what you want them to say, and that's the only information that you provide, then that's the information that uh, that's right, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, all it takes is one guy with a hot take and the right credentials on the right show, and before you know it, that becomes the dogma. And I mean. We have to, you know, go back and how did we get here? Um, you know, assess how did we get to this point of, of this prohibition, so to speak. And it's because the hemp industry was going to clobber the paper industry and the guys in the pulp business. And so they thought, yep. well, we better put the kibosh on this. And so they hired lobbyists to stigmatize cannabis. That's why we got the term marijuana, which is a derogatory term against Hispanics and those from Central and, and South America. And it worked, you know, we, you had the reefer madness, you know, if you smoke this, oh my God, you're going to get involved in an interracial relationship and you're going to run off you're and like listen to jazz up. music. Yeah, you're going to listen to jazz music I, and oh my God, I, you're going to have a good time. Say, and... I think somebody jumps out a window in that movie. It's Yeah, yeah, they it, do. yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I've the... never smoked a cultivar that's, that's made me want to jump out a window. I mean, some of them make me want to close my blinds. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah. we can go all the way back to like, you know, like uh, like presidential journals from back in the day, like presidents growing hemp and how they saved what they would call the sweetest of the hemp for their own personal stash to smoke. Like this isn't new, you yeah. know, it's just... There were some real rich guys in the 20s and 30s, and the hemp market was cutting into their their trees. And at the time, plastics were becoming a thing, and DuPont really hated weed. So you had all of these people making up these insane stories about race mixing and jazz music and jumping out of windows and how this is all terrible because people smoke weed and just demonized it for, you know, for financial gain. That's the only reason. It's a shame. It's a the shame. one thing you know that I would say on a lighthearted note is, if there's a taco truck going by Adam's house and I'm I'm hanging out with him after enjoying some of his medicine, I might consider jumping out the window. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, the thought that in the, the thought that in the 1940s you smoked something that probably had 
4% THC <laughs> and you were just in some fit of rage jumping out of a 10 story bill. I mean, it's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you, you want to jump out of that first story window to get some tacos. I like, I, I can't blame you. <laughs> it's like Kool-Aid guy style. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's not like it's bath salts though. You know, <laughs> like it's, it, it's just crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So let, let's, shift back just a little bit um uh, and i want to ask you adam i i've got a, a tough one let's let's see you are like the og medicinal caretaker basically so ha- how over all these years have you tackled the the many to many problem uh, of selecting uh you know a target chemotype or or cultivar and and managing its diversity uh, of expression and then matching that with the diversity of the human endocannabinoid system response? It's a big question. I um, know, I know. I'm you, sorry. Can have, <laughs> you can have a person that, that looks exactly the same on the outside. Let's say same build, same weight, same height, same genetic background, all of these things. And cannabis is still going to treat that person differently. So what I developed very early on, um, what we originated was individualized cannabinoid therapies. And what that is, is having the constituent parts of the cannabis plant being able to mix up customized oils for an individual patient. Um, when we start a patient on a treatment prog- like on a treatment cycle, what we do is kind of start with a middle of the road generic product. We can take and add from that product terpenes, different cannabinoids, different things to dial in an oil to a specific individual and what it is that they're trying to achieve uh, with their cannabis. So sometimes it's three or four different genetics all mixed together into one product to try to get all of the pieces that we need for that individual. Another huge part of it is journaling on those people's part. Um, If somebody's working with me, I do require journal entries so I can follow their progress and how things are working for them. Um, So for dialing it into a certain individual, it's time consuming. So it's not a one shoe fits all kind of uh, process that we do. Um, It's very specific to the individual. And then also as things start to you know they start to get used to a certain type or a certain style we can do minor changes in different directions to make sure that the oil or the product that they're using is is always working in the way that we want it to um does that answer i i mean yeah it's it sounds like you you have concocted a formula which is awesome and impressive uh, I just, I, I see the hurdle of replicating what you've described on, on mass. And this is the same education Very battle that difficult we keep talking to about. Do. Very difficult to do. You can, you can make some different oils or different products that will help a decently widespread of people um, and have pretty consistent results. But 
you know, when we're dealing with people that have cancer, have seizure disorders, or we're getting off of opiates, there, there are very specific. So once I have, you know, once I've worked with, let's say a handful of patients with a certain thing, and I start to see a pattern repeating, it seems like this, this, and this works very well, then it gives me a, a much better starting place. But as like large scale goes to get very specific with people like that takes a lot of time um, and a lot of effort on the individual level. So that's very hard to do as like a, a mass replicated uh, sort of project. Are, are there tools that exist that would help with this or that don't exist that you like? Oh boy. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, so let me let me jump in here. So, and, and this kind of speaks also to Adam's uh, breeding protocols as well. So, you know, when when I first met him and he was doing all this phenomenal work, he was really going about it using what would be regarded as Mendelian genetics. So you you breed two plants together. You're looking, you produce a bunch of seeds, you sprout those seeds, and you're looking for interesting traits. And then he'd go off and, and pick the interesting ones and send them to a commercial lab and, and then get the data, you know, several weeks later. Um, you know, fast forward to now, you know, we've got Adam situated with his own lab and he's able to test hundreds of plants a day. And so he can identify the unique ones right away. So now going to the medicine side of things, I mean, he's through his experience working with people he knows what sort of concentrations they need of the, the major and then the ancillary cannabinoids. And so, you know, he just is able to tailor make a, an oil with the specific compounds at the right concentrations, and he's able to get it dialed in every single time. So um, not only is he able, has his breeding experiments um, accelerated in their innovation, but now, I mean, he's able to make uh, any kind of, of derivation in terms of oil um, with incredible accuracy. So it, and that, that instrument, I mean, you know, you're looking at what's called a, an HPLC, uh, high performance liquid chromatography. That'll, that'll help you, um, allow, well, basically detect and quantify, I think 15 different species of, of cannabinoids. Um, we've also got, uh, a, a GCMS gas chromatography mass spectrometry in his hands. And, uh, we've got a study coming out in cannabis science and technology, uh, hopefully here in the next couple months, um, where we looked at terpene concentrations over time. So uh, yeah, my, my goal is essentially, you know, working with Adam, I mean, he's the one with the skill and the artistry. And, you know, using the analogy, I mean, he's going through the dark to, to discover the unknown. And I'm essentially the flashlight in his hand, and I'm trying to show him the way to make those discoveries much more expeditiously. Thank you. I right, thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, it's it's a, it's my pleasure. I mean, this has been some of the I most needed I needed Zach real bad. <laughs> <laughs> this has been some of the most rewarding research of my career. I, I mean, I've I'm a traditional cancer biochemist, and I've worked in some really really contentious and controversial fields um, when I got into this, and so. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of evolution occur here, and I, I still think we're cr crawling out a, of the primordial ooze, if you will, and that, you know, in 10 years' time, we're going to be on a totally different level. But, you know, when you're in a laboratory, and even if you say, oh, I'm working on a treatment for cancer, okay, so you're, you're developing, maybe you're treating mice, 
you, you never really get to see the terminal impact on the patients. Um, in this particular field, I know that I'm helping a team of people that are insanely passionate about helping fellow mankind. And they're taking their innovations that I'm helping contribute to, and they're making a, a vast difference in people's life. And I mean, some of these, these patients that they've treated um, with the epileptic disorders, I mean, we're talking about folks that have had you know, 10 or 20 seizures a day. Now they're having less than five seizures a year. I mean, totally transformative uh, medicine here. And so to be a part of something like that, to know that, you know, I've, I've developed this technical knowledge and I'm helping, you know, people improve their quality of life and I'm helping families uh, maybe prolong the life of a loved one. I mean, you know, you can't put a price on that and it's really what helps drive me moving forward. That was very well said, Zach. Thank you. And, and thank you, Adam, for the work you guys are doing. I've always been so moved by the medical side of this industry and, yeah. and the stories from the patients. And it is, it's really incredible what this plant I can do I think if more people would just take, like, I, I wasn't the happiest dude for a lot of my life. And I, I found my calling in helping others. And I, I think that if more people would just take time to reach out and help others, they would see how really good that makes them feel. And the world might be a bit of a better place. Mm -hmm. I know it works for me. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, no, that, absolutely. Um, so those are most of the questions we have. Is there anything else you guys like to add before we wrap up? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I mean, it's something that we're really passionate about. Um, we're always trying to affect change and, and there's a lot of, lot of work here uh, to be done. And, uh, you know, the platform that you guys have provided here is excellent. And I, you know, I really value cannabis science and technology because it's adding to the legitimacy of this industry. We're see starting to see, you know, more and more white coats, so to speak, more MDs, more PhDs get into this field because it is the, the next frontier of, of medicine. And, you know, like I said, it's been incredibly rewarding along the way to work with uh, folks like Adam and, and Chris and, and have the ability to improve people's lives. I mean, you know, just really scratching the surface here and excited to see where we go from here. The next three to five years should be a, a lot of fun. That's, that's great. Yeah. I, uh, I talk with, some of my colleagues and we we talk about how fast everything feels like it's moving um but uh regardless of that that feeling and that pressure that comes along with all the insanity of um individual state jurisdiction and federal prohibition um it, that that we're we're still in the bottom of the first inning maybe we're we're still in the top of the first inning i i, I don't uh, there, you say three to five years. I, I think maybe we have a little bit more time before federal legalization. Uh, I, I don't know if they can all get their acts together. There's too many competing interests. Uh, it's it's not should we do it. It's how do I get my cut, and yep. Yep. that that's that's going to be the death of all of us. Uh, but we'll get there and. We're we're gonna blow the lid off of it, and and your genetic repository, Adam, is going to be so important for for decades to come. I'm certain of it. So, Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. 
So I I I, I want to thank you guys for being with us today. We really really appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge on on the research you're doing and and the potential that we all have in the future. Our pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it and uh, invite us back anytime. <laughs>